Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Right now, Amrita Sen joins us, Energy Aspect. She's wonderful on these dynamics. Amrita, if you were to publish this morning, what would you publish on the dynamics, the micro theory of demand in oil? I think, you know, demand is, April is going to be the worst month for demand we've seen probably ever for, for the oil market. But the good news is that we are going to come out of this. And, you know, you are starting to see social distancing measures in parts of Europe and the U.S. So it should get better from here. Amrita, can we just get your thoughts on what is happening with some of the indexing around the crude market and whether you think we've seen a total failure of some of these products to actually track the oil market? Because what I'm seeing on the screens today is just a big distortion because of what's happening with a single ETF. Yes, and you know, we've seen this in 2008 as well. This is not the first time and back then. The WTI contango widened out to $8, which is precisely why we had said for this year, um, as soon as you know the, the demand had collapsed and we could see these fund flows coming in, because a lot of retail investors think this is a good time to go long oil because it's quote-unquote cheap. But then they don't realize the contango and the amount of money they're losing rolling every month. And of course, now everybody's aware of these ETFs and everybody pre-positions. Um, and you know this is this is going to be with us for a few more months. The good thing is the USO, for instance, came out yesterday and said they're distributing the positions all the way through June 2021. So they are taking some action, uh, but there's just way too much retail length of the fund. Rita, I'm struggling to understand why the July WTI contract is more than $18 a barrel, given the fact that we're going to face the same issue uh, come next month. What's going to change? First and foremost, they are trying to distribute it. So, you know, even for the May contract, for instance, 100% of their uh, positions were there uh, in May, whereas now they're distributing it. So it's more like 20%, and then they're distributing a further 20% down the curve and all the way through to June 2021. So the pressure will be less, even though there will be some pressure. Also, some of the ETFs have been forced to close out. A lot of the Bank of China products, for instance, that lost billions of dollars because of the WTI move to negative territory, they're no longer allowed to trade. So I think that helps. But also by July, physical fundamentals will be a lot better. Supply, supplies have started to turn lower. Demand is starting to turn higher. We should start to see draws from June onwards. Of course, it doesn't mean we are anywhere close to rebalancing. That's going to take years. But at least we are moving in the right direction. I guess I'm struggling to understand the idea of hope that continues in the oil markets, sort of idea, the hope that the uh, supply-demand dynamic will get better and that oil prices will stabilize higher. Fitch Ratings put out a prediction yesterday saying that high-yield energy bond and loan defaults, uh, that the rate will increase to 17% and 18% respectively with respect to bonds and loans. And this presumed nearly $30 a barrel type of pricing. Is this lowballing the potential defaults given where we are? I would agree, and I think that's exactly why I don't think it's a hope in terms of the rebalancing. I think you know we've been bearish all the way through. We even with the OPEC plus cuts, we didn't think that would have been enough. But now we do see supplies are finally turning. 
and turning faster just as demand is going to start to recover again. No one is saying we're going to be in balance for a good 18 months to two years, but we are starting to see millions of barrels per day of production being shut in in the U.S. bankruptcies, as to your point, will be a lot higher than some of these estimates because right now there's very few, if any, producers that are making any money at these prices. And Rita, let's get out to 2021, early 2022. Talk to me about what that environment looks like off the back of a price shock that happened 18 months ago. I think back end of 21 into 22 gets very interesting because it's not just the supply losses that we are finally starting to see now. uh, It's also the potentially semi-permanent losses to reservoirs that we see because of the shutdowns of the scale that we are going to see in the coming weeks. We've never seen this before. No country other than Saudi Arabia will probably come out of this unscathed in the sense that they will lose some production on a permanent basis. Okay, I want to know what the nations do. And Rita, I mean, this is all great, and you are so expert at supply, demand, et cetera, et cetera. They can't sustain Brent 20, Brent 24, Brent 28, whatever, versus their structure of fiscal and social demands. Which countries are you most following, not for the drama of collapse, but that just are going to be hugely challenged? Nigeria, Iraq would be the two top ones for us. Um, and yes, you know, there's a lot written in the press about Saudi Arabia and Russia, but again, they do have reserves. They can get out and even raise capital if, if there needs be, but it, they are at least better prepared. But for us, Nigeria, Russia, for sure, and then, then sorry, Nigeria and Iraq, for sure. Uh, and then, of course, there are a lot of the Latin American countries, which mm-hmm. we believe are very vulnerable. No. Amrita, this has been wonderful. Thank you so much. Amrita Sen with us, and of course, with the energy aspects, just extraordinary this morning. News out of Europe this morning. Thanks. Getting a break on leverage limits. The so-called leverage ratio will be relaxed under an EU proposal announced today. We are lucky on this program to have an exclusive interview with the European Commission Vice President Valdis Dombrovskis. Valdis, always great to catch up with you, sir. Let's talk about it. Why did you make this decision this morning? Uh, well, uh, indeed, uh, European economy, as economies uh, across uh, uh, the world, are hit by the coronavirus crisis, and we need to come with a also economic response to this uh, crisis because the uh, uh, vast majority, if not all, EU member states uh, will uh, experience uh, severe recession this year. So we need to provide necessary uh, stimulus uh, to the economy. We are doing uh, this through uh, major uh, stimulus, uh, uh, fiscal stimulus, relaxing our state aid rules, monetary stimulus, but we are also looking at our uh, banking sector rules, so utilizing existing uh, flexibility in our uh, prudential uh, rules and also coming with targeted amendments on the capital requirements regulation uh, to uh, uh, facilitate uh, bank lending capacity to the real economy. So basically what we are doing, to the large extent, we are following the decision of the uh, Basel Committee to postpone implementation of so-called Basel III rules by right. one year. For example, you mentioned specifically a leverage ratio. This is exactly one, uh, one of the right. Decisions that are following up puzzle. We all want banks to be able to finance the economy. There'll be people listening to this program right now, though, wondering why we want risky European lenders to be holding 
less capital. What's the answer to that? Well, uh, first of all, uh, uh, we are not proposing that banks are holding uh, less capital uh, because when we discuss uh, finalization of Basel III, there were additional requirements which were agreed internationally, which were to gradually set in. And what Basel Committee has decided internationally is now uh, to uh, postpone the introduction of those additional uh, requirements. And uh, by the way, uh, uh, United States are also taking advantage of this uh, Basel uh, decision. So right. from that point of view, it's part of okay. coordinated okay. Uh, international response. Hey, Mr. Dabrowski, we're honored that you're with us today. John and I love seeing you in Davos and at IMF meetings and such. I'm absolutely fascinated when you, with your heritage of leadership in Europe, believe we will finally see bank consolidation. Your job is extremely difficult. Madame Lagarde's job is extremely difficult. And the only solution is a consolidation within countries and a consolidation across borders. When will we begin to see that? Well, uh, actually, uh, this is a process which we are already seeing, that if you look across EU uh, member states, we see this process of banking sector consolidation uh, uh, gradually uh, happening. Uh, not that it's some kind of, you know, uh, uh, regulatory aim of the European uh, Commission to force bank uh, mergers, but I would say also the additional prudential rules which had been uh, introduced uh, internationally and which we are implementing in Europe are facilitating this, and we are gradually seeing also this process of bank sector uh, consolidation. Uh, unfortunately, in Europe, we saw also uh, uh, another process of uh, banking uh, uh, sector, banking lending, banking activities uh, becoming more national, so less pan-European, and there we want to counter this tendency, so we want to have a, a banking sector which is across uh, if, uh, uh, active across the EU and the same goes with the capital market sector. That's, for example, uh, why uh, we are now working on our next stage of our capital markets union project. The answer is often more Europe. It's intriguing to me that when it comes to the debt, the answer is never more Europe. The north of Europe, the Netherlands and the like, do not want debt mutualization. There are many people outside of Europe looking right now at European officials getting together and trying to come up with a plan to offset the pain in the European economy. But it's help me understand that, help our audience understand that, why we are still no closer to shared debt in the Eurozone. Uh, well, uh, first of all, uh, it's uh, worth noting that uh, already with the measures which have been uh, taken in Europe, we already have provided a response, fiscal response, liquidity support uh, of the scale of 3.4 trillion euros. This is uh, the EU's largest ever response to the crisis. So this is something which is already done. Yeah, I, I, but Vladis, this, is so, this uh, is so important. Vladis, this is so, so important what John brings up. And I know you've done $3 trillion as well. Our American audience wants to know what you and Klaus Regling believe will be the mutualization of debt in Europe. Do you have any optimism that could occur? Well, actually, uh, uh, what I was referring now is uh, immediate crisis response. 
Currently, we are working on the EU's recovery plan, which will based will be based on uh, uh, ambitious EU budget for the next seven years, so-called multi-annual financial framework, and we will come with a so to say classical EU uh, multi-annual budget, and there will be additional. Uh, recovery fund which we propose which among other things will be financed by the joint borrowing uh, through the European Commission in financial markets so we'll be uh, uh, raising financing jointly at the European level to finance our European response uh, to the crisis and to finance economic recovery. Varys, we've got to leave it there. We wish you the best. We wish Europe the best, of course. Varys Dombrovsky, European Commission. Vice President. This is David Harrow, Harris Associates, one of the world's great international and value investors. David, the charts are measured by standard deviations. What that means, folks, is one or two standard deviations is within the realm of normal. And then you get outside that. And right now, the differential between growthiness and valueiness has never been more of a deviation. Have you ever seen it like this, David? Have you ever seen the love of growth and the lack of value? Have you ever seen it like this? Now, the closest we've come was late 08, early 09. But other than this, I haven't seen it. And to me, it actually is a great cause for excitement because when you get such a price anomaly, and the price anomaly is the ignorance of value of businesses, the ignorance of what a business is priced at. And we know fundamentally what makes a company valuable is its cash flow stream. And so eventually this will come back to us. So to me, the greater the spread is, the better the future looks. There are a set of, there, David, this is important. There's a beautifully answered, by the way. There's a set of catalysts that get you to that word eventually. Are they instigated by investors or are they instigated by corporate action when officers and board members say, wait a minute, why are we so cheap? It's probably all of the above. And what I think eventually happens is investors begin to see say, the light at some end of the tunnel, whatever is the trauma that has caused the huge uh, <clears throat> dichotomy between valuations. Um, in in 08, 09, it was the great financial crisis. And when people began to see a stabilization of the global economy, you saw that spread between growth and value narrow because people thought, well, okay, these businesses are going to be okay. They're going to make it through the cycle. Today, we have the same type of price movement, but amplified and with a different cause. And the different cause was it was a medical affliction. Um, and when people begin to see the light of at the end of the tunnel for this, I also believe that you will see that. And at the same time, companies also become frustrated um, and they begin to do things to try to realize value, whether that means selling an asset that isn't uh, reflected in their valuation. We see this in our own portfolio. Take a company like CNH. It's going to separate into two businesses, off-road and on-road, you know, off-road being tractors and construction equipment, on-road being trucks and components. So we see companies, when they do become frustrated, they'll take steps in whether crystallize the value of a business, a change in management, uh, stock repurchases, or 
dividend distributions, they will take steps. So I think it's both those things. But the big move will probably come when people realize they're underexposed in the most undervalued assets. And as they're so undervalued, it doesn't take much to get them up and going again. It's a very small door to enter. And when a lot of money begins to flow into that door, the door, the door size gets much bigger. So, David, given the volatility that we've seen just in the last three months, um, where are the sectors that you're seeing the most value or the most mispriced uh, assets? You know, the funny thing is, is that it's just a continuation of what we've seen uh, in 2018 in particular. 2019 was kind of a break year. Uh, and then 2020, that same value versus growth. Take consumer discretionary, industrials, European financials. They're what really got clobbered during this crisis. And safety, e-commerce, uh, technology, this is what really, really did well. So the only, there wasn't really a change. There was just an opening of the magnitude of the spread. And the volatility on any given day was actually like something I've never seen. Um, we had a stock in our portfolio, Ashdead. One day it opened up down 20%. The day before it was down 15 and it closed up over 10%. I mean, these are just huge intraday. Forget about intraweek, intramonth. <laughs> these are intraday price movements. Now, I will say it's settled down. I mean, you can see the VIX went from a high of 80 and now it's just over 30. So we are starting to see a little bit of calm turn to right. the market. So what does that mean for the banking and the financials? I mean, we've had a number of people on Elisa Martinuzzi of Bloomberg Opinion was on uh, today basically uh, saying, David, if, if Europe can't fi- figure out how to consolidate banking now, when are they going to do it? Are, are you just ch- chomping at the bit over the next two years of what financial will do? Well, I think the financials in Europe will do well only because of they've been beaten up so bad. I mean, you were able to buy the quality of the sector. Let's take a BNP Paribas. A week ago, for just over 30% of book value. In the last great financial crisis, it didn't trade that low. And one would argue they're much safer investments today, given their capital positions. Uh, in the financial crisis, we're 4 or 5%. Today, they're 13 14%. So you have safer banks trading at lower prices because I believe the big pockets of money played the you know the same the same game plan the same pitch. We're in instability. We're in fear. Short of you know European financials and they they moved as a bucket. And so to us as kind of marksmen, we're able to pick and choose the quality and buy those that have really sold down, which we believe are at unsustainable levels. The reason why I believe it's so unsustainable is A, you have the low price, B, you have the strong balance sheet, and C, believe it or not, even with the low and negative rates, you've seen resilient earnings. You've seen earnings uh, behave because there are other levers that the managements have been able to pull to protect their earnings. And so this is why we've remained exposed in these areas, and we're very excited about the future prospects of our portfolios. It's really, really hurt us. We had a Terrible first quarter. I, I have some of the Milwaukee Brewers, so don't feel bad. <laughs> <laughs> you can say the same thing about the Packer draft. <laughs> <laughs> so you even get Tom Brady. I thought Tom Brady would go to the Packers. Why'd you take a quarterback? 
That's a really, really good well, I, I don't know. I kind of understand why we took a quarterback. I'm not sure why we took that quarterback. <laughs> okay. Well, there we go. Paul? So, David, how about energy? Is it, it, You know, talk about value, but, boy, there's just you get it's so much risk in that space. How are you viewing energy right now? I mean, I think there is a lot of risk in energy, but if you look at the short term, it's hard to believe that the normalized price of oil is $12.31. That's what it says on my screen right now. However, I will say this. So I think in the near term, there is opportunities um, because oil is oversold. I think oil is significantly oversold in the short term. But in the medium and long term, oil in particular, to me, it's hard to make a case given supply and demand. Uh, now, gas, of course, is a little bit of a different story because gas, I think, has continued use as long as you could get gas to the market. You know, it's, it's relatively clean, it transports clean, it burns clean, um, and it's very low priced. And as, as long as you could have access to pipelines and, and uh, LNG and this type of thing, I think gas could be a very good business. I worry about oil because... I think uh, demand for refined products over the medium and long term will continue to go down. And I think that the supply, at at least at this stage, there's just so much of it. Um, But I think at this price, you have an opportunity if you're a trader, but that's not necessarily we are. Uh, We do have some exposure uh, in our international portfolios uh, via Synovus. Um, but we, we don't have a lot of energy at, at Harrison. There's some where, where we believe there's a good management teams and good production profiles, good production costs, and good balance sheets, but you've got to be careful. So, David, David, as you look at this market here, how concerned are you that, as Tom and I have been talking about you know, for you know, the longest time, it's really centered on a small number of names. I mean, I'll call it FANG Plus or whatever other moniker you want to. It just doesn't seem healthy for the market overall. How much of a concern is that for you? Well, it's a very good point because, it, and it hasn't been healthy for us as long-term value investors. It's been terrible for us. And I think this actually gives pause us, uh, gives us a pause to be optimistic because eventually we believe the market will spread out. And those names which do have Uh, good fundamental value characteristics, value by us defined as low price, high quality, but are being ignored just because they're not in that narrow sector which you describe. So if you're an index holder or a passive holder or a holder of these assets, which have been loved now for the better part of a decade, I would be slightly worried. If you are someone like ourselves who are positioned for when this love turns to like and at some point maybe dislike, we believe we are very well positioned and will be happy for when that day comes, when we have a more dispersed uh, disbursement of valuation within the markets. David Harrell, thank you so much. With Harris Associates, greatly, greatly appreciated uh, this morning. On the edge... Of exuberance, we welcome the laureate of Yale University, Robert Schiller, who we always talk to uh, when we can. Uh, I want to go more philosophical here, uh, Professor Schiller, and that is to speak of your quiet book that didn't make the press of exuberance and this, that, and the other thing, and that is Finance in a Good Society. 
the clear observation of Republicans and Democrats is Europe and the United Kingdom are figuring out how to come to the aid of their citizens in a less clumsy manner than America. How do we get to that point in America? Or do we even want to get to a European model of a good society? Well, I don't know if we want to go whole hog into a European model, but I think that it is true that uh, our free market orientation sometimes has us miss essential roles of the government. Uh, at a time like this, people uh, have contracts to pay money, like rent or or interest on uh, corporate debt, uh, that uh, there should have been something in the, those contracts that allowed for a circumstance like this, but there isn't. So the government is the risk manager of last resort. It comes in and does common sense things that... Uh, uh, if the ideology supports it. And uh, I, I think that we could learn something from Europeans. Uh, that there's, you know, no, no free market contract can anticipate everything. And uh, we do have to have some in, interposition of government uh, authority. And this is a time like that. So, Professor, just in the last 10, 11, 12 years, investors have had to deal with two extraordinary shocks, first the financial crisis and now this pandemic. Are you concerned that investors, just when you think about individual investors, that their psyches may be permanently altered here as they think about risk, as they think about you know, how to invest their capital longer term? Uh, I wouldn't use the word permanently, but maybe for years. Yeah, the psychologists talk about something called the affect heuristic, and that is a tendency for people when they're frightened by something uh, to to the, the fear extends to many things in their lives, even things that are unrelated to it. So this pandemic has scared us. Uh, it has us wondering <laughs> whether we'll survive another couple of weeks. That's that's quite a scare. And it's going to affect other, other, other things, like the stock market or the housing market. Uh, we'll see about these things. Yeah. Professor Schiller, one more question, if we could, in too short a visit today. How does exuberance come back? There's lots of people pushing against Robert Schiller right now, saying exuberance is gone. And yet you and I know your study of history is always, in every case, exuberance returns. Right, How right. does it do that? How does it do that? Well, this is one of the mysteries of human psychology that that uh, it's called animal spirit. Uh, you there's a desire for adventure and there's a desire an optimistic bias that comes back eventually. Uh, yeah. So, in after 1929, we had the stock market coming really right back up into like 1936 or so. Uh, almost all the way up in uh, real terms. Uh, and then it, it sank again. <laughs> so uh, these things are still uh, not fully understood, but it does have something with the human spirit. Robert Schiller, thank you so much. He is the Nobel laureate of Yale University. 
We've done so many different stories of this great pandemic, and we thank all of the medical professionals we've dealt with worldwide. At the Johns Hopkins University and at their hospital is someone who is not so much expert on infectious diseases or virology, but expert on the people that do this every day. And that, of course, is the nurses. Nisa Ernst is with Johns Hopkins. And here's our conversation uh, with Ms. Ernst on the state of nursing. There's been a tremendous response throughout our health system, as well as many other health systems, to really get out and aggressively test the community and follow some of the ideas that we've learned from the other areas of the world that have been tackling coronavirus. Um, Nasa, there have been a number of reports of, you know, about ventilators, the use of ventilators, whether they're good or not. One of the things that's also come in Europe is the fact that actually because there's a shortage of frontline medical workers, that you're retraining others to try and do these very difficult procedures at times. How is that going? That is very interesting. It's actually going very well. It was very difficult in the beginning. You know, the profession of medicine is very protocolized, and it's not necessarily very agile. So you would have to change not only your skill set, but your mindset in order to provide the safest, highest quality patient care. You bring up a really good topic. We have what we call proning teams. We have found that proning, which is a physical maneuver that's very common in, I'm I'm in endoscopy, we do it all the time with patients that are sedated in order to get them more oxygenation. And we found that by proning patients early and often, we reduce the use of ventilators in a lot of our patient care areas. You're one of the rarest things out there. You were out in the real world doing terrible jobs, and then you finally got a real job in nursing along in your career (laughs) with Sheraton, Johnson & Johnson, uh, and others. I want you to talk about the nursing profession now. How are nurses as an industry going to come out of this pandemic? They've got to be changed after what we've all observed. Where will nursing be in two years, in five years, in 10 years? That's a great question. And I was actually thinking about that when I was driving in. You're right. I have a business background. I came into nursing as a second career. One of the things that this pandemic is showing us is that nurses are going to take a very different role two years, five years, ten years down. Nursing is what I call very silent work. No one really knows what we do. And I think this pandemic has shown the world what we do and what we do well. Nurses are incredibly innovative and creative. And they're also very, very good at maintaining high-quality patient safety standards. Yeah, but when do they get respect within the system? And I'm not only talking about nursing folks. I'm talking about the interns, the residents, the people in the trenches of these hospitals. It seems like, am I right, they're the last ones to get paid? When does that change? You know, I can't answer the pay question. I can tell you what is interesting here, and I'm speaking specifically for Hopkins. One of the things that Hopkins has done is recognize and honor every employee in this organization who comes in every day to provide some type of care, either direct patient care or indirect patient care. One of the other things that this pandemic has shown us is that, you know, we're a big institution. We're no different than a lot of other healthcare institutions. We're big, we're lumbering, it takes us years to make a decision. This pandemic has shown us that you're right, there are, there are people right at the front line who make excellent decisions 
in a very short period of time that make a huge difference in a patient's outcome. Mr. Ernst, the Johns Hopkins University, that has been a joy to speak to some of their officials each and every day. Hope very much on the reopening of the economy, Tom. Governor Andrew Cuomo said there could be a case for reopening some regions of New York, at least, in May. It is the Empire State, folks, and we have been thrilled to speak often on Bloomberg Surveillance with the Lieutenant Governor of uh, the Empire State. Kathy Hochul joins us. Kathy, I picked up the Daily News this morning, and I just wanted to see it there. You know, New York dropped dead. I mean, that's, again, the tone 45 years on in Washington. The president saying to New York, drop dead. Explain to our audience coast to coast how New York contributes to the federal uh, pot of money. New York State, our residents contribute $29 billion more to the federal government to fund their operations more than we get back in services. And I am elected official now. I was formerly an attorney on the staff of Daniel Patrick Moynihan back in the 1980s. Yeah. And he released this report every single year to show how New Yorkers subsidize the rest of the nation and therefore made an argument that we should be able to get more money coming back to us. But now more than ever, you think about the fact that we have been the epicenter of this pandemic. We have had to incur right. costs. We've had to, you know, our businesses are hurting. And the federal government should look at that record, realize that states like Kentucky take more money than they put in, and we give more money. And so why are we even having this conversation? Give us right. the money now. We need your help. Okay, to John Farrell's good question there on testing and where we are, where it's every state for himself. I'm looking out, uh, Lieutenant Governor, on 2% of New York State people jogging around Central Park. I mean, 2% are going to get tested? That seems absurd. Well, we want those testing rates to be much higher, and that's why when President Trump met with Governor Cuomo just exactly a week ago today, our governor made a very compelling case to say, okay, you say you don't want to have anything to do with testing. How about if we split it? New York State will run the testing, we'll do the collection sites, we'll gather the samples, we'll get out the results, but we don't have the components to do that testing. We don't have access to the international supply chain where reagents and vials and swabs are being manufactured in places like China. Can you help us, federal government, at least have or a supply chain and a repository to send to states like New York so we can ramp up from 20,000 tests a day to over 40,000. That's exactly what we're striving for. So we can do better. We just don't have the, the reagents and other components to be able to do it. We're, we're, we want to do it. Absolutely. We think it's going to make a huge difference in people's sense of security as we start reopening the economy. Lieutenant Governor, just fast forwarding beyond the testing and reopening, I'm wondering about the fate of New York City as a metropolitan center. I've read an increasing number of stories about businesses rethinking plans to open offices in the city and the possible exodus of families moving to the suburbs and beyond. How realistic is that? How big of a threat? How often do you talk about that? We have been down and out before in New York City. You think about 9-11. And at the time, people said, why would any tourists ever come back here? Clearly, we are a terrorist target. Why would anyone want to live in Manhattan? We came back stronger, better, more vibrant than ever before. Hurricane Sandy wiped out, you know, flooded the New York City subway system, you know, creating and you know, wreaking havoc throughout Long Island. We know how to rebuild right. and build stronger with more resiliency. Yeah. So I believe that what we're 
we're tasked with right now is to reimagine a better New York City, yeah. a better New York State. And I'm involved with that with the governor as we speak. And then Lieutenant Governor John Farrell moved here, top of the market. It's almost really isn't it, your input this morning after yeah. that serious suggestion from, from Kathy. Kathy, let me follow up yeah. on something important, please. How do you reopen in New York City if you're not aligned with New Jersey and neighboring states? We will be aligned. No, absolutely. This is something the governor initiated with our neighboring governors uh, over a month ago. This tri-state coalition that expanded to seven states where we don't want to do anything at odds with another neighboring state because there's so much synergy in that tri-state area in particular. People live in New Jersey, they work in New York and vice versa, same with Connecticut. So the governors have really been enlightened. I mean, this has not happened before, but it's been this incredible collaboration. But we talk about the fact that if each is open in one area, should they be open elsewhere? What about schools? What about transportation systems? What about uh, opening up businesses? So I think New Yorkers and people living in that region should feel the confidence that there'll be intense coordination among our administrations to make sure that we're not working in cross purposes from each other. That, that doesn't accomplish anything. You open up the bars in Newark and not in New York City, people are going to go to Newark. I mean, let's just Let's understand human nature. And that, then that just expands the spread if New York City is not ready to open. So that's why it's really important what they're doing, and that'll make the difference. Well, I'm listening to what both states are saying at the moment, and Governor Cuomo has been quite clear about slowly looking at reopening some regions of New York in May. Governor Murphy of New Jersey essentially saying flat out that the stay-at-home order will remain in effect in its entirety until further notice. Are you saying there's no daylight between the two governors at the moment, Kathy? I'm talking about regionally. New Jersey is in close proximity to New York City, the metropolitan area, which is not ready to open yet. When the governor talks about opening regionally. He's talking about something like Erie County, an area like Erie County, Western New York, which is literally a seven-hour drive from New York City. So no one's going to do, you know, no one from New York City is going to hop into mm. a, uh, a facility and visit yeah. Erie County. It's just geographically doesn't make sense. So that's, we're talking about the far reaches of the state that really have a dramatically lower number of positive yeah. cases, hospitalizations, and are more prepared to open up. And that's what I'm focusing on now as we speak, because my focus uh, designated by the governor a week ago when he came to Buffalo was to chart a, a reopening plan for the outside downstate areas right, uh, right. upstate New York and central New York on a different timetable altogether. Well, it is the Empire State. Lieutenant Governor, thank you so much for joining Bloomberg Surveillance this morning. John? Great to catch up with the Lieutenant Governor on a regular basis to get the update on the reopening. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.